As I do from time to time, I want to begin the message this morning with a one-question quiz for you to think about. You don't need to answer out loud, but I want you to ponder it. Here's the question. What is the only miracle of Jesus to be recorded in all four gospel accounts? What miracle is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There is only one miracle. And that is, if you read the title of the message, then you knew the answer. The miracle of feeding the 5,000. That is the only miracle of our Lord. Think about that. The only miracle to appear in all four gospel records. That in and of itself ought to show us the importance of that particular miracle by our Lord Jesus. It was considered that important by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even beyond that, considered that important by the Holy Spirit to guide those four human authors to record it in their gospel records. It is in the text that we're going to consider this morning in Mark chapter 6, so please turn there with me if you haven't already done so, and please follow along as I read verses 30 through 44. Mark chapter 6. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a de- deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in a hundred and in fifties, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments And of the fish. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. As you may remember from the last message, just prior to this story, Jesus and his men received word that the beloved prophet John the Baptizer had been beheaded. He had been imprisoned by Herod Antipas in the desert fortress of Machaerus which is located about four miles east of the Dead Sea. The fortress was, in a sense, way out in the middle of nowhere. 
It had a dungeon beneath it where prisoners were kept. The dungeon was dug deep into the earth beneath, and archaeologists have discovered the many places where prisoners were chained to the walls. There was no natural light and only dank, uh, foul air to breathe. Here, John the Baptist was incarcerated for about a year until his execution. Beloved, think about how difficult this would have been for John, a man who had lived in the wide open spaces of the outdoors. He was confined within four narrow walls of an underground, underground dungeon. There, after many months, he began having doubts. What is the forerunner of the king doing in prison? It's understandable that John was discouraged and confused. After all, his message had been a strong and fiery message of repentance. He warned about the consequences of a refusal to repent. In Matthew 3.12, he said the Messiah would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He said the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and, get this, he knew that his message was from God. No doubt in his mind, Luke 3.2 says, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. So John knew that his message wasn't inaccurate. Yet he couldn't figure out how the actions of Jesus fit with the message God had given him to proclaim. Jesus wasn't bringing judgment. He didn't seem to be bringing in the kingdom. He certainly wasn't overthrowing Rome. He wasn't even spending much time in Jerusalem, the city of the king. Instead, he was ministering mostly way up north in Galilee. And to make matters worse, John was surely wondering why he was in prison. That just didn't seem to line up with the announced program. All of this resulted in confusion in John's mind. Then one day, some soldiers came to his cell and chopped off his head because Herod Antipas had made a stupid vow to his stepdaughter after she had performed an erotic dance. This would have been heart-wrenching news to any believers of the first century. Jesus loved John the baptizer dearly. And some of the disciples of Jesus had previously been disciples of John the baptizer. So their hearts would have been very heavy when they heard this news. As a result, once the disciples returned from their short-term mission, Jesus wanted to get away for a while with his men. He just wanted to get away. Verse 30, we are told by Mark, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. They were sent out back in verses 7 through 13. And it's at that point that Mark breaks the narrative to tell about the murder of John. Thus, the story is resumed here in verse 30. The disciples returned and reported to Jesus about their ministry, and then Jesus determined it was time to withdraw. Verse 31 tells us that Jesus said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Jesus says to his men, Come aside to a deserted place 
and rest a while. Jesus was teaching his men a very important principle about spiritual leadership, and it is this. The spiritual leader who is always available isn't worth a thing when he is available. Jesus told his men that it was time to pull aside for some rest and some nourishment. And in verse 32, Mark tells us, So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, probably at Capernaum, and they took off toward the northeast shore of the lake to get away, to get a break. However, the crowds were so eager to be around Jesus that they decided they would go on foot to the place where they knew Jesus was heading. That's what Mark tells us in verse 33. He says, But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. Isn't that amazing? Once people knew where the boat was heading, many of them took off and beat the boat to its location, which would have been about an eight-mile walk. This was a common occurrence throughout the ministry of Jesus. Crowds of people flocked to him from all over the place when they heard about his miracles. Now, he wanted his miracles to draw people toward him, but he wanted people to exercise genuine faith in him as a result. Unfortunately, that wasn't always the case. In fact, it's probably safe to say that it was seldom the case. Yet even when Jesus knew the people would not trust him and believe in him and embrace him as Messiah, Lord, and Savior, still he showered goodness on the people in a variety of ways, as we'll see in this story. He still healed them and provided food for them miraculously. So Mark tells us in verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out, that is, when he came out of the boat, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Oh, beloved, don't miss. Don't miss this picture of the immense compassion of our Lord. His heart is heavy because he received word that his dear servant John had been beheaded. In addition, his heart is heavy for his disciples because some of them had been disciples of John and they loved John dearly. Yet in spite of his own heaviness of heart, Jesus was moved with compassion for the multitude. And don't forget what Mark has already told us in this story. Jesus was trying to pull away for some rest. He's trying to get away. In light of that fact, He could have been annoyed with the crowd, but instead he had compassion on them. He showed his compassion by teaching them, Mark tells us, and, as we'll see in a moment, by providing food for them. Matthew tells us that he also healed many of them. He did all of this knowing that the vast majority of these people would never place faith in him and yield their lives to him. What a compassionate Lord. So we read in verse 35, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, 
This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. It is obvious that Jesus already knew what he was going to do on this occasion. But he didn't tell his disciples in advance. He didn't tell them what he was going to do. Thus, he allowed them to wrestle through the dilemma of what to do about the multitudes. Why did Jesus do it this way? He did it this way because he saw an opportunity to stretch the men he was training. Jesus was so committed to developing and maturing his men that he took every opportunity to encourage them and challenge them and equip them. Jesus saw this circumstance as a perfect opportunity to nurture their spiritual walk. Beloved, this is what our Lord is all about in our lives. Don't don't miss this. This is what he is about in our lives. He uses the circumstances of life to stretch us and develop us and mature us and equip us in our walk with him. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable. But the Lord knows what he is doing. On this occasion, he surprised his disciples by what he said in the next verse. In verse 37, Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Notice how Jesus involves his disciples in this process. Remember, he didn't have to do it this way. He could have done it all by himself. But this miracle he was about to perform wasn't merely for the multitude. Oh yes, it was for them. He had compassion on them. Mark has already told us that. But this miracle was also as much for the disciples. Jesus wants to stretch them, to to challenge them, to strengthen them. That's what's on his mind. He was always looking for ways to nurture them, to bring them along, stretch them, build them, strengthen them, just like he's doing in your life and in mine. And boy, did this stretch the disciples. They asked, Mark tells us, they asked if they should go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread, which would have been equivalent to about eight months of wages. That's a huge sum of money. Eight months of wages. Should we go out and try to you know, get enough money to buy that much bread for such a huge crowd? Verse 38, But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. By the way, don't let the word loaves mislead you. You know, when you and I read that word, we think of a beautiful loaf of bread. These loaves were nothing more than little biscuits. In John's gospel, we were told that these were barley biscuits and that they came from a little boy. Barley loaves were the loaves of the poor. So the little boy was probably from a poor family. He didn't have much, but evidently he was willing to give what he had to Jesus. How about you? Do you think you have to have a lot to be useful to the Lord? Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, the more a person has, 
often the more difficult it may be for the Lord to use that person for His glory. It may surprise you to hear that, but it's true. You see, the more we have, the more of a tendency we have to depend on ourselves. If a person has a lot of intelligence, or a lot of money, or a lot of talent, or a lot of whatever, it's easy for him to assume that he can accomplish the Lord's purposes all by himself. He can just get it done. But when we don't have a lot, a lot of intelligence, a lot of money, a lot of talent, or or whatever, the more we depend on the Lord to use us in spite of our deficiency, in spite of our weaknesses. And when we depend fully on the Lord and His power, His grace, He can use us greatly. Now, don't get out of balance on this. It's not that an intelligent person or wealthy person or talented person can't be used by the Lord. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. Few men have ever had a mind like the Apostle Paul. Brilliant mind. Roman, Greek, Jewish. I mean, he was brilliant. Incredible intelligence. So it's not that an intelligent person or a wealthy person or a talented person can't be used by the Lord. He or she can be used by the Lord if there is humility and dependence and a willingness for the Lord to get the glory, not the person. But if we have a lot going for us, if we have a lot of talent, a lot of abilities, it's very easy to let those assets actually become liabilities. Because we let them get in the way of the Lord getting the glory for what is accomplished. The little boy behind the scenes in this story didn't have much, but he was willing to give what he had to Jesus. In fact, he is so far behind the scenes that Mark doesn't even tell us about him. But John does. Mark simply records the disciples stating that there were five Loaves, five little biscuits, and two fish available. That's all we have. That's it, they said. Verse 39, And Jesus commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. You see, Jesus is keeping the disciples involved in the process. As I mentioned earlier, this miracle is for them as much as it was for the multitude. He has them organize this huge multitude of people. It's interesting that Mark mentions on the green grass. Just a little, sort of little insight there, because uh, for those of you who've been to Israel, you know that from about uh, May, Mayish through September, October, it never ever rains. Therefore, from that and during that season of the year, the grass is not green. It's green in the spring, coming off the the winter rains. So what that tells us is that this took place either in the late winter or early spring months of the year because it was green grass for the people, not brown, dry, brittle grass to sit in. It was green. And Mark adds just that little, little detail. He says that Jesus told them to sit down in ranks in hundreds and fifties, verse 40 tells us that, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. This type of seating arrangement was familiar to the Jews during their festivals. It's the same arrangement they used, and it would have made the food distribution much more efficient. So the crowd does as they are instructed. The disciples did as they were instructed. Verse 41 says, And when Jesus had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves, 
and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. Again, notice the the emphasis Mark is giving us. He makes it clear that Jesus kept the disciples involved throughout this entire process. Sure, the disciples were needed to distribute the food, but you know, he could have asked for volunteers. He could have just sort of selected men from the crowd. Here, come and help me get this. But he made sure the disciples were involved because he wants this miracle to impact them. He wants it to have an effect on them. Verse 42 tells us that uh, after he divided and gave them the fish, so they all ate and were filled. Simple statement with profound meaning. They all ate and were filled. Everyone received all they wanted. No one had to scrounge for food. Jesus supplied all they needed. And yet, interestingly... Jesus didn't want them to think that his miraculous power was an excuse for waste or for poor management. So Mark adds another very interesting detail in his description. And by the way, we know that Mark's information came from Peter. We talked about this months ago when we started this series through Mark, that this could actually be called the gospel according to Peter. Peter was Mark's source, so that's why we have so many eyewitness accounts in Mark's gospel, because Peter related to Mark. So Peter remembers this vividly as he relays it to Mark and as Mark records it. All of these little details. Verse 43 says, And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. So Jesus had the disciples gather up the leftovers. He not only wanted them to gather the leftovers to avoid waste, he also did this to keep them involved in the process. His purpose in all of this, remember, is to stretch them and strengthen them and and build them. So the disciples gathered up the leftovers, and there were, not surprisingly, 12 baskets full of food. You know as well as I do that the number of remaining baskets full of food was not a random number. There was a reason why there were 12 baskets remaining, 12 full baskets. What was that reason? Obviously, we can't say dogmatically because the text doesn't state the reason, but we can take a highly educated guess. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Which means that each disciple would have had a basket full of food. Therefore, it is safe to assume that Jesus made sure that there were twelve baskets remaining, One for each disciple, because one of the primary reasons for this miracle was to strengthen the faith of his disciples. As each disciple was standing there holding and looking at the full basket of food in his hand, it would have been a tangible and powerful lesson of the power of this man who claimed to be their Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus saw to it that each of the disciples received a basket of bread as a reminder never to doubt him. Never. By the way, just by way of application, what has the Lord done in your life to remind you never to doubt him? I'm certain there are things in your life and in mine that the Lord has done to remind us never to doubt him. We just need to be looking and listening. We need to be perceptive 
because there is no doubt that the Lord is also working in our lives. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. In other words, once God starts working in your life, if you are a child of God, once God starts working in your life, he keeps working in your life. He will never stop working in your life and mine. We just need to be perceptive. But I think there's possibly another reason why Jesus made sure that there were 12 full baskets of food remaining. For any Jewish person, when he would hear the number 12, it is safe to assume that the first thing he would think of would be the 12 tribes of Israel. Hence, it is possible that Jesus made sure that there were 12 baskets of food remaining as a vivid picture of the fact that he was the one who had come as the bread of life for the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that Jesus did this miracle to illustrate the fact that he is the bread of life. There's no doubt about that. Because in John 6, right after he performed this miracle, he made that claim. John 6.35 tells us, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus performed this miracle for spiritual purposes. In addition to the purpose of meeting their hunger needs. It's so important that we see that. If you limit your understanding of this miracle simply to the fact Jesus fed a bunch of people, you're going to miss one of the the, the major aspects of why Jesus did this. He did this to, to graphically illustrate that he was the one who had come as the bread of life to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now think with me about this. Where did this miracle take place? What have we read thus far in the story? According to verse 32, it was in a deserted place, sort of out in nowhere. And what had God done for the 12 tribes of Israel when they were out in the desert, out in nowhere? He supplied them with bread from heaven, manna. That's the connection Jesus was clearly making. And I guarantee you that the disciples never forgot that lesson because as I said at the beginning of the message, this miracle was so powerful in its impact on them that it's the only miracle to be recorded in all four Gospels. This had a profound impact on Matthew, Peter, who's behind Mark. Luke's account is a compilation. So whoever he interviewed, John, another participant, eyewitness. This really had a lasting impact on all the disciples. And then the next verse closes out the account. Verse 44, Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. This verse makes it clear that the number of men, and Mark is very clear in, his, in the original language, he is very clear that the number of men, he's not using that term generically, he's not talking like mankind, he's talking about men, Men, 5,000 men. That's why we refer to this miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. But probably, actually it was probably more like 15,000. Only the men as the heads of the household were numbered. In addition to the 5,000 men, there were also women present and children. So if there were 5,000 men, it's probably safe to say there were approximately 5,000 women. And probably more because... Women often outnumber men in religious settings. And if there were thousands of men and women, 
who were married, not, not all of them would have been, all the crowd would have been married, but if you're talking 5,000, a huge uh, number would have been married, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be absurd to consider there being 5,000 children. That's assuming an average of only one child per household. There could have been more, there could have been less, but the total number was probably somewhere around 15,000. Many commentators placed the number at 20,000, some even at 25,000. No wonder the disciples were saying, should we go buy eight months' worth of bread to try to feed this crowd? What an incredible miracle. No wonder it's recorded in all four gospel accounts. Jesus created the bread and fish right on the spot as it was being passed around. That is tremendous creative power. Have you ever stopped to think about how this could have happened? We, we should contemplate it. What I mean is if there were five loaves and two fish to begin with, how did they multiply? Did the five loaves... You know, when Jesus looked up and blessed, that is, prayed, did the five loaves become ten, and then twenty, and so on? Did the, did the two fish become four fish, and eight fish, and so on? Or did Jesus do it a different way? Did he cause the chunks of fish to grow back as each person took a chunk of fish? Did it just miraculously grow back? Did he cause the chunk of bread to grow back every time pulled a piece off from the existing biscuit? We don't know how it happened. All four Gospels record that it happened, but none of them tell us exactly how it happened. I mean, they, talk, they use the word multiplied, so he multiplied it. But we don't know exactly how it happened, we, but we do know that it happened, and we know one of the main reasons why it happened. We know, without a doubt, Jesus did this miracle to illustrate the fact that he is the bread of life. Because of, we know that because of what we read in John 6 after this miracle. For the balance of our time, I want us to turn over to that chapter, to that uh, record of this event, John chapter 6. Pack, past Luke's gospel, which is after Mark, then John chapter 6. In verses 1 through 14 of John 6, Jesus performs this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But then after that, down in verse 35, as he begins to comment on it, he links the miracle with his astounding claim to be the bread of life. So skip down to verse 35, where Jesus is providing commentary, as it were, on the, on the miracle. Verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. By the way, the nevers in this verse are emphatic in the original language. You could rightly translate or sort of paraphrase this, the one who comes to Jesus shall never, in no way whatsoever, can happen, not a chance, hunger. But please notice the prerequisite to this promise. You must come. Jesus says, he who comes to me, the one who comes. That reminds us of a very, very important truth or reality, and it is this. There is nothing automatic about salvation. Please hear that. 
Nothing automatic about salvation. Just because Jesus died for our sins doesn't mean that everyone is automatically forgiven. Just because Jesus opened the way for us to get to heaven doesn't mean that everyone is automatically going to go there. I want to stress this point because I I, I never cease to be amazed at, at conversations with people in society who assume that because Jesus died, it means it's automatic. They know the facts of the gospel. They know Jesus died, and they assume wrongly that means everybody's covered. Everybody's in. So please hear me when I say there's nothing automatic about salvation. You must come to Jesus. That's what he says here. That's that's another way of describing salvation or the means of salvation. It's interesting to note that John usually uses the word believe throughout his gospel. I think he uses some form of the word believe 98 times in his gospel. When John wants to communicate to people how to be saved, how to become a Christian, or how to be right with God, he usually uses the word believe. We are made right with God by believing in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how John describes the means of salvation or the way someone becomes a child of God. But, but, catch this. Every now and then, John uses or records a different word or phrase in his gospel to make sure that we understand what he means by the word believe. And here's one of those occasions. To believe in Jesus means to come to him. It doesn't merely mean to believe in him intellectually, mental assent. It means you come to him. Or to use the words of chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 27, it means to follow him. So when the Bible talks about believing in Jesus, it is not talking about mere mental assent to facts, just like you believe George Washington was the first president. And it's not talking about saying some little prayer that has no bearing on your life, no impact on your life. To believe in Jesus means you come to him. To believe in Jesus means to follow him. It means you commit yourself to him. Or you want to hear a shocking one? Down in verse 53, you must eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood, which is a powerful word picture to say you must take Jesus' life into the very core of your being. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It means to take him fully into your life, just like eating bread. For those who do the promise of verse 35 that we will never experience spiritual hunger. Jesus says, He who comes to me shall never hunger. To use the words of Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, life without Jesus is nothing more than just mere existence. It's not really life. Jesus offers real life. Because he is the bread of life. He offers eternal life and he offers abundant life. Jesus' I am statement here in verse 35 is the first of a series of I am statements found in this gospel record. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. 
In chapter 10, verse 14, he said, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In chapter 15, verse 1, he said, I am the true vine. And here in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. G. Campbell Morgan had a fascinating insight into Jesus' I am claim here in verse 35. He pointed out that what Jesus did was to take the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush, I am, and he linked it with the symbol of perfect sustenance for human life. He linked the name of God with bread. I am the bread of life. What a marvelous truth. In Western society, in our culture, it's hard for us to appreciate the magnitude of this claim by Jesus because for us, bread is often optional, right? I mean, you know, you have lunch, you have some soup. Do you want some bread with your soup? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you have a piece of bread, maybe you don't. Bread is optional. We can choose to have bread with our meal or we can pass. Thanks, no thanks, I don't think I'll have any bread today. But in that day, it was absolutely essential. It wasn't a take it or leave it kind of thing. It wasn't optional. So when Jesus spoke these words in verse 35, I am the bread of life, he was saying, I am the essential ingredient in life. I am that which is absolutely necessary and essential. Do you believe that? Honestly now, do you see Jesus as the essential ingredient in life? Or is he just sort of a sideline part of your life? You know, he's kind of there, but just a, you know, a sideline issue. Let me ask it this way. Is he part of your life or the very essence of your life? That is the question that Jesus basically was trying to force this multitude to wrestle with and his disciples to wrestle with when he multiplied bread and then said, I am the bread of life. He was trying to force them to wrestle with the issue, am I at the center of your life? Am I the very essence of your life? That's Jesus' claim in relation to us. Let's bow together as we close this morning. And as we do, let your mind wander back to a green pasture or hillside around the Sea of Galilee and think about what obviously the Holy Spirit wants us to think about by virtue of the fact that he recorded this miracle in all four gospel accounts. And think back to that day with thousands, literally thousands of people seated in hundreds and fifties, the disciples working their way around trying to feed all of them. And think of Jesus' awesome creative power as five little biscuits and two small fish fed thousands, literally thousands of people seated on the green grass. And then when that picture is really clear in your mind, think about Jesus coming off of that and then uttering those monumental words, I am the bread of life.
I am what is essential in life. I am the most essential ingredient in life. I am the bread of life. And then ask yourself the question, as I must ask myself the question, is that, is that really true in my life? Is Jesus the most essential aspect of my life? Or just a part? Just a facet? Is he really central? That, that much of a priority in life? However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, respond. Don't, don't put it off. Don't pass it off. And certainly if you're here today, and you've never received Jesus Christ, you've never yielded to him to follow him, that's what you must do. Father, this is a story that's familiar to so many of us, and it's familiar not only because we've heard it for years and years, but because if we've read the New Testament and read the Gospels, we end up running across it in every one of the Gospel records. But don't allow, don't help us not to allow our familiarity to steal from us or rob us of the awe and the wonder this should create in our minds. To think about our precious Lord exhibiting such creative power to take five little biscuits and two little fish and feed thousands of people so that they all had all that they wanted and needed and were full, completely satisfied and full. What a powerful picture of the spiritual truth the spiritual reality that Jesus is the bread of life to us. May we grapple with that personally in our own lives, and especially we pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, has never surrendered to him to follow him. May this be the day we pray in his precious name. Amen.